Thanks so much for joining for another episode of Run the List, a medical education podcast designed by Dr. Naveen Kumar, an attending gastroenterologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Emily Gutowski, a Harvard medical student planning to go into internal medicine, and Dr. Walker Red, myself, a internal medicine resident here at Brigham and Women's Hospital. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. Welcome back to Run the List. My name is Emily Gutowski, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at Harvard Medical School. I'm here with Dr. Sus Wykar, a nephrologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and we are going to talk to you today about how to interpret a urinalysis. Thanks for coming, Dr. Wykar. You're very welcome, Emily. It's great to be back. I know as a medical student coming into rotations, it's a little bit hard to interpret a urinalysis sometimes. We know some of the classic patterns, how to recognize a urinary tract infection if it's very obvious, but sometimes there's more subtle findings. And that's why I wanted to talk to you about how to think about some of the caveats and some of the things that maybe aren't as clear when we get a urinalysis on our patient. So the first thing I want to start with is who exactly gets a urinalysis in the hospital? Yeah, so it, the urinalysis is one of the most commonly ordered tests uh, in, in clinical medicine. I don't think you can get admitted to the hospital through the emergency department without getting urinalysis. So almost everybody who's hospitalized will get a, a urinalysis. So remember, the urine has been studied for centuries by clinicians. It, you know, goes back to antiquity. So the, the careful examination of the urine is something that is sort of a, a bedrock of internal medicine. And using the urinalysis thoughtfully can give the astute clinician some really good clues uh, to diagnoses. One of the most common reasons for getting urinalysis is when you suspect a urinary tract infection. Would you mind going over briefly when to suspect a UTI based on the UA? Yeah, so in a symptomatic patient who has a urinary tract infection, you'll often see white cells in the urine, bacteria in the urine, Leukocyte esterase on the dipstick would be positive. Nitrites could be positive. You often also will see red cells, uh, heme positive. So that's, you know, the, the classic urinary tract infection. Leukocyte esterase, nitrites, as well as bacteria on the sediment examination. And what if there is a situation where you maybe have positive white cells and leukocyte esterase, but no bacteria? Yeah, this is a good one to keep in mind for internal medicine residents. The finding of sterile pyuria, so if you have white blood cells in the urine, so say you have leukocyte esterase on the dipstick, but there's uh, no bacteria either on urine sediment examination or on the culture, you should think of a couple of diagnoses. One is it can be seen in prostatitis and other GU tract issues. For example, certain cystitis, uh, interstitial cystitis in women. Um, so that's one, so prostatitis. The second is genitourinary tuberculosis. So you have someone from an endemic area uh, who's got fever and has sterile pyuria. Think about GU tuberculosis. You can also see white cells in the urine because of inflammation in the kidney itself, so allergic interstitial nephritis. So keep in mind, interstitial nephritis as a cause of sterile pyuria. When you look at your analyses, are there any specific patterns that we should be on the lookout for? Yeah, there's some patterns that you, you don't want to miss. So the, the classic ones we teach on rounds, if you have someone who has a heme-positive dipstick but no red blood cells on urine microscopy, that could be because the dipstick is picking up the heme pigment itself. So it could be a sign of intravascular hemolysis or rhabdomyolysis. 
The classic presentation would be someone with severe acute kidney injury from, say, crush uh, syndrome, who has uh, a rising creatinine and a urinalysis which shows heme-positive dipstick but no red cells. That can be a really early important sign of uh, acute rhabdomyolysis. Another one to keep in mind is, you know, glucose should not typically be in the urine. If you have glucose in the urine, you can see that in uncontrolled diabetes. You can see that in patients with diabetes who are on SGLT2 inhibitors. But you can also see it in patients who have proximal tubular dysfunctions. Because remember, your kidneys are filtering the plasma. The plasma has glucose in it. So the fact that there is not typically glucose in the urine means that the kidneys are reabsorbing a massive amount of glucose. And that's done in the proximal tubule. So if you have proximal tubule injury from something like multiple myeloma, which can cause injury to the tubules, or from uh, heavy metal toxicity, or from a drug like tenofovir. So proximal tubular injury itself can lead to glucose spilling into the urine. So, so myeloma, proximal tubular toxins are things to think about in someone who has glucose in the urine, but a normal plasma glucose level. Another one would be someone who has a negative dipstick protein. So the urinalysis is really sensitive for albumin as opposed to other uh, types of protein. So someone who has multiple myeloma with uh, light chains in the urine may have a dipstick negative for protein, but have quite a bit of protein in the urine. So someone who's got a high protein to creatinine ratio and quantification, but negative dipstick, think about myeloma kidney. And in that case, would you go down that route and further work up the proteinuria and try to quantify it? Yeah. So when do we send a protein to creatinine ratio or an album to creatinine ratio? I think it's a very important test. If you have someone with dipstick positive protein or albuminuria, it's important in, in most contexts when you're suspecting a, a kidney disease primarily uh, to quantify it. And we quantify it with either the albumin to creatinine ratio or the protein to creatinine ratio. Remember that the urinalysis is semi-quantitative. So one plus or trace or three plus protein is really a semi-quantitative estimate. And it's very much influenced by how dilute or concentrated your urine is. So we get the albumin to creatinine ratio or protein to creatinine ratio in the urine to cancel out the effect of the dilute or concentrated nature of the urine sample. So in someone who's got uh, any dipstick positive proteinuria, uh, or if you're suspecting myeloma, uh, it's important to get a quantification of the uh, urine protein. And that can be done with either uh, urine protein to creatinine ratio or urine albumin to creatinine ratio. We typically get urine albumin to creatinine ratios for screening patients with diabetes, for example. But in someone in whom you're suspecting uh, certain kidney diseases, it can be helpful to get both protein and albumin quantified in the urine. You mentioned that urine samples can either be highly concentrated or highly dilute. I know you can sort of use the specific gravity to help parse that out. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, good point, Emily. So the specific gravity can be very low in someone who's drinking a lot of water. So it can be as low as 1.003. It can be as high as 1.025 or even higher in patients who are extremely dehydrated with a concentrated urine. And the reason that's important to, to look at the specific gravity is that it can help you interpret what one plus or two plus or three plus means on something like the protein. So if someone with an extremely dilute urine, like a specific gravity of 1.003, has one plus protein, that could actually be a lot of albuminuria, even though it's just one plus. 
Conversely, someone who has a very concentrated urine, say 1.025 specific gravity, who has trace protein, that's probably nothing because they have a very concentrated urine so that the semi-quantitative dipstick will look to be a little bit positive, but it's really because there's not much water uh, in the urine as opposed to being because of a lot of protein in the urine. So it's a specific gravity can be important to look at. There are a couple of minor caveats. If you have a lot of glucose in your urine, your specific gravity will be artificially high. If you've just received uh, radio contrast uh, intravenously, uh, that can be filtered and increases the specific gravity. Uh, so those are just minor points to keep in mind. So good to take the whole picture into account when looking at the UA. I know I've been talking about the urinalysis, but often that comes with a urine sediment. Can you explain what the difference is between urinalysis and urine sediment? Yeah, the urine urinalysis is the dipstick. So this is something uh, you know we can order in clinic. If you if you come to kidney clinic, we actually dip our own urine. And so that's that's a very common screening lab. You can ask the clinical chemistry lab or it's the hematology lab, depending on which institution, to actually look at the urine under a microscope. And that is now done in an automated fashion with you know specific machines that are designed for high throughput. So the urine sediment typically is done in an automated fashion in modern laboratories. But then there's also the old-fashioned examination under the microscope, and nephrologists are particularly keen on this, and we, we learn a lot about patient's uh, disease by actually looking at the urine sediment ourselves. So if you have someone in whom you're suspecting, say, acute kidney injury or chronic kidney disease, and you get a report from the clinical laboratory that is interesting, say you, you get the report of muddy brown casts, it can sometimes help to have a nephrology colleague to, to come look at the urine with you in cases where uh, determining what the urine sediment shows might be helpful in, in formulating a differential diagnosis. So the lab provides a urine sediment examination and evaluation, but it's, it's mainly geared towards the identification of things like red cells and white cells. Not so good at this more subtle distinction between different types of casts, which can be very important in evaluating people with primary kidney diseases. And can you go through a couple of the casts that we might see under the microscope and what those could mean for the patient? Sure. So why don't we take a, a case? So if you've got someone who comes into the hospital with a creatinine of four and their baseline is one, and they have been vomiting and have, haven't had much PO intake, you may be thinking in terms of a differential diagnosis, things like pre-renal azotemia or maybe acute tubular necrosis. So one of the tests we get actually is looking at the urine. In someone with pre-renal azotemia, you will find a concentrated urine. You can also find hyaline casts. What you typically will not find are abundant muddy brown casts. So if the lab reports or if you're a nephrologist or if you see muddy brown casts on the urine sediment, that's more indicative of actual acute tubular necrosis. So, so that's a, a key finding. So muddy brown casts for acute tubular necrosis. It's not specific for acute tubular necrosis. Someone with rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis, severe vasculitis, can have tubular injury as well. But uh, the classic presentation uh, for ATN is muddy brown casts. Other things that we think about are uh, white blood cell casts and red blood cell casts. So uh, the sort of textbook presentation of acute interstitial nephritis is the finding of white blood cell casts. The textbook presentation of acute glomerulonephritis 
is red blood cell casts or dysmorphic red cells. If you look at the red cell often under a phase uh, contrast, you can see little Mickey Mouse ears. If you find dysmorphic red cells or red blood cell casts, you think about acute glomerulonephritis. White cell casts, you think about acute interstitial nephritis. There is overlap though. People who have acute glomerulonephritis also have inflammation in their kidneys so they can have white cell casts. So uh, there's a lot of overlap. And the distinction can be tough, but those are things that we look at. So white cell casts, red cell casts, epithelial cell casts, and uh, muddy brown casts for acute tubular necrosis. So there's some of the things we look at. And then, and then I should also mention hyaline casts for pre-renal azotemia, which the lab actually uh, readily identifies. You mentioned epithelial cells. Sometimes the urine sediment comes back with epithelial cells or squamous cells. What does that tell us about whether we can interpret the whole sample? Yeah, the finding of a lot of squamous epithelial cells can be a sign that, you know, it was not a clean catch of urine. So you can often have a false positive uh, result on the bacterial culture. You'll often find some mixed flora in the urine. You may also, you know, take with a grain of salt the finding of white cells. So you're right. If you see a lot of uh, squamous epithelial cells, you sort of do put an asterisk next to that urinalysis. Uh, and if it's important, have the patient repeat it with a midstream collection. And along those same lines, I know we take with a grain of salt Foley specimens, specimens that are collected from patients who have chronic Foley's or Foley's that were put in, in the hospital. What findings would you not trust if you see on a Foley specimen? Yeah, this is important. Thanks for asking that. So the, the Foley specimen will invariably have some red blood cells because of the trauma. Uh, so the finding of red blood cells or, uh, you know, heme positive in a, in a Foley specimen is to be expected. In indwelling Foley, there's oftentimes chronic inflammation, chronic colonization. So you can see bacteria, you can see white cells. Uh, so you do have to be careful with the interpretation of a Foley specimen, particularly for bacteria and hematuria. What about in the case of asymptomatic bacteriuria? Yeah, so asymptomatic bacteriuria is when you have greater than 100,000 colony-forming units of a, of a single species. We don't typically screen the general population uh, you know, with urine cultures. Uh, so if someone's completely asymptomatic and has bacteriuria that meets that threshold, uh, you don't necessarily treat. However, there are some exceptions. Pregnant women, individuals undergoing uh, urologic interventions, and kidney transplant recipients. So as we wrap up this episode, what are some of the key clinical pearls or takeaways that you want our listeners to come away with? Well, I would say remember a couple of the really important patterns that you don't want to, to miss. So someone who has heme-positive uh, dipstick with no red cells on the, on the sediment, uh, think about acute hemolysis or rhabdomyolysis. Someone who's got a, a positive glucose with a normal plasma glucose level and they have a urinalysis that shows positive glucose, think about the possibility of proximal tubular dysfunction or Fanconi syndrome, which can be seen in multiple myeloma, which can also be seen in proximal tubular toxins. And then also remember that you should really look at the urinalysis and urine sediment carefully, particularly when you're uh, approaching the patient with acute kidney injury or chronic kidney disease. In AKI, the finding of hyaline casts could point towards pre-renal azotemia. The finding of a lot of muddy brown casts in the urine sediment can point towards acute tubular necrosis. And for certain chronic kidney diseases like glomerulonephritis, vasculitis, you can see things like white blood cell casts and red blood cell casts and, and allergic interstitial nephritis. You might also see white cell casts. So the urinalysis 
critical tool in, in the internist approach to differential diagnosis. Thanks for joining us on this episode, and please come back soon to run the list with us.